if you would, uh, you may have seen these in the foyer or uh, well, not if you didn't and you want one. This is just a, a timeline of uh, Paul's ministry, uh, which we happen to be uh, looking at um, in the book of Acts. So if you would open your Bible there to chapter 17. Our focus this morning in chapter 17 is going to be uh, verses 1 through 15. Uh, we will pray, and then we will read the passage uh, before we examine the text uh, for application. So if you would join me in prayer, please. Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name that you would illuminate the passage to our minds that we might understand it, that you would inflame our heart to embrace the truth down to our souls. Would you engage our will that we will do according to your will, Father? By your Spirit's power, will you convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Help us embrace the necessity of Christ's death and resurrection that we might be saved. Convince us, Lord, of the authority of Scripture. Convince us that we need to understand ourselves and understand in ourselves that Jesus is the Christ. Enlist us in the proclamation of Jesus as the Savior and the King that is far above all authority, Lord. Lord, convince the doubtful heart amongst us of your holiness and your love in Christ Jesus. Give clarity to those who might be skeptical of mind. Give them certainty of your word concerning your Christ. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus, who is the name above all names. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. As you are able, would you stand for the reading of the inspired, infallible word of God from Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of God. Y'all may be seated. As we've stated, as I've stated all, all along, that one of the major themes or one of the ways that you could maybe take the book of Acts and, and summarize it down to like a, a basic sentence is that the book of Acts is the great commission in action. That it is the uh, Holy Spirit in action. 
with, within the ministry of the apostles. It is the Holy Spirit's inspired, moved, ongoing activity in the church today. It is evangelism. It is evangelism that has action. It is the forward move of the witness of Jesus Christ, telling the truth about who he is. That is, that it is the, the proclaiming the necessity of Christ's suffering to the point of death for sin and God raising him from the dead for our justification. It is what we do as the church or ought to be doing as the church that we proclaim just the necessity of Christ's death both across the aisle, across town, and across the county. That is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the church as we are uh, heading out. And, it, and if the church is weak, I believe it is this. The church's weakness is because we've been disobedient in the command, in the command to go, therefore, and make disciples. We've been weak in it as a, as a church, just generally speaking. I'm not speaking necessarily about this church, but we do have some weakness in that. In declaring Christ crucified, in proclaiming Christ as king. See, of equal import to saying that Jesus is the Christ, that his death and suffering was necessary, and that God raised him from the dead, as equal uh, import to that is our declaration that Jesus Christ is the king of kings, that he is the Lord of lords, that he today is far above all earthly rule and authority, and that we are those who surrender to him. So I want to pause just for a moment. And I prayed this uh, prayer uh, this week several times, and I want to pause and do it together as a church this morning to pray for rep reformation at Spring Hill Church. And reformation, I want to just simply define for us this morning, is as a return to form. A return to form. A, refer, a, a return to what is biblical in the command of Christ to us. Christ says, go therefore and make disciples. Right? Then he also tells us in that same passage, teaching one another to observe all that I have commanded. Tells us that disciple making is across the aisle. It is across town. It is across the county. It is everywhere. That is, that is our one duty. And I think that we, as a church, as churches in general, have failed in that. So I want to simply pray that we would return to form, that we would be reformed. So I ask that you would pray this with me. Father in heaven, we are those who are poor in spirit, weak and sinful. We have neglected, avoided. We have even shrunk back from Jesus' command. To those for whom he died, he commanded to make disciples, to teach others, to observe all that he has commanded. We've exalted earthy, earthly priorities and earthly authorities above the command of the one whom you raised from the dead. And in your resurrection of him from the dead, you declared him Christ and King. Father, we repent of our failure and our neglect. We appeal to your grace this morning and to your love that you would renew and revive our church. Move us in the power of the Holy Spirit to return to the form of the early church. Make your priority our priority. Make us willing to do your will. Engage our efforts in recovering the Great Commission to make disciples across the aisle, across town, across Washington County, across Yamhill County, whatever it is that you find out, wherever it is that we find ourselves hearing the Lord's message this morning, recover our obedience to the Great Commission. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, we're going to focus our attention from Acts 17 on the message of evangelism or the message of our disciple making. One of the things I was thinking about this morning is that it's really, 
the Sunday school answer is the most simple answer, right? You, I, I, would, I would say this in youth group and ask kids questions and try to prod them and they answer that they always came up with because it was easy, is Jesus. But, but Jesus is the answer to the question, what is our evangelism about? What do we say? Simply, we say what the scripture says and what it says is that the necessity of Christ's death is for you. It was needed for you to have salvation. And God raised him from the dead that you might have new life. And he is the Lord, King of Kings. That's the message. As simply put as you can. That everywhere we navigate in this world and the things that we come against, the answer to the problem is Jesus. Sometimes the problem, the answer to the problem is Jesus is Lord and you have something else as Lord. Sometimes that's the answer to the problem that we face with other people. You are your own Lord. No. The answer is Jesus is Lord. That's, that's the answer to your problem. You've made yourself Lord when Jesus is the Lord. You've made yourself King or Queen or whatever it is. You've taken a lofty position in your own mind, in your own heart, but Jesus is the Lord. That's the answer. That's the answer to the question. And sometimes the answer is this. You're in this condition because you have sinned against holy God. You are there because you are a lost sinner and without hope in yourself. But the answer is that Jesus' death was necessary. You need to know that it was necessary for you. That it was needed. And it was everything you needed and God provided it. His death was necessary that you would have salvation. But he didn't stay dead. God raised him from the dead that you have new life. Sometimes that's the answer. But the answer is always this. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is your needed Savior and Jesus is your King. And whether or not you recognize that need, guess what? Jesus still remains King. Whether or not you agree with that, whether or not you want to stay the Lord of your life, He is still the Lord. He is the King. God has made Him so, and His Word declares it. That's quite a simple message, isn't it? We, we like to make it really complicated, right? That we need to tell this, just tell who Jesus is. According to the Scriptures, Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus is the King. His death was necessary for you, God raised him from the dead that you would have new life. And in his resurrection, God declares him king. And he is the king of all that is going on right now. That's the simple message. But we, will, we like to make it complicated. Well, let us uh, dive into this text. We'll look at verse 1 by itself. And then we'll go from there. Now, when they, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of the Jews. So as we look at the map, I think I've got one up here. As we look at the map, they quickly are traveling here. They, as we left off last week, we were in Philippi. So they quickly are traveling through these towns. And at the end of our message today, you, we will find ourselves in Berea. So in the first journey, it was, it was a slow process, right? We stayed in each town for uh, uh, quite a while before uh, we see them move on. But here, uh, this describes a very quick journey, a progression to get to Thessalonica. And th this progression was, was that, that the Holy Spirit said that he saw somebody drawing him, drawing Paul to uh, Macedonia, right? This is this draw that the Spirit is, is moving him quickly. There was this great Roman highway there called, and I'm going to get this wrong, the Via Egnacia, I think. I'll spell it. E-G-N-A-T-I-A. -A. Anyway, this great highway ran from Neapolis and ran through Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, and then it went western through Macedonia to the coast of the Adriatic Sea. And this is where travelers would travel to go across and get to Italy. Uh, Paul's missionary campaigns were greatly eased here 
because these were good highways. These were good, clear highways, and it aided their progress. And these missionaries, they travel in this short time uh, 33 miles to Amphipolis, and then 27 miles to Apollonia, then 35 miles to uh, Thessalonica. So arriving in Thessalonica here, Paul enters the synagogue. And this was his custom. As his custom was, he would go where there was some, some familiarity with the scriptures, right? Um, and at least there's some openness to the teaching of it. I think sometimes when we think about the evangelistic effort, right, uh, and, and some of the things that we see, I don't want to name names. We see some out there who, who advocate this idea of cold call evangelism, like go and knock on doors, uh, go and uh, force these four spiritual laws upon people and chase them down until you get it all out. Because the point is you just got to get it out and you just got to, you know, share this. No, the Bible kind of teaches us that, that where you're going, where people might be receptive, that's the first place where there's a possibility of some reception, some understanding, right? So he goes to a place, the synagogue, where there's at least an opening, an opening for those who would hear the teaching of the word of God. Thessalonica, like Philippi, was an ancient city. But unlike Philippi, uh, Thessalonica was made a free city by the Romans uh, in 42 BC, and it was granted the right of self-government. So it was self-governed on a Greek level uh, and a Greek pattern rather than uh, according to a Roman pattern. So Paul there does not appeal to his Roman citizenship, we'll see. Paul will uh, appeal to them just from the scriptures. And so here he is, he's, he's in the synagogue, and Paul went in, as was his custom, verse 2, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So Paul argued based on the scriptures. This was a common authority that was accepted by Jews and Christians there, it was conducted by means of argument. He opened up the meaning of the scriptures and he declared authoritatively the evidence for the case that he's about to make, right? So he's using the word of God to explain what he's, this argument he's about to make. And probably to the great astonishment of the Jews there, he claimed that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. See, in, in, a, in a Jewish mind, right, to hear that would say, no, this, he can't be the Christ because cursed by God is every man who hangs upon a tree. In the Jewish mind, to hear that, I can give my allegiance and my faith to one who is cursed by God. It would have been just out of their realm of thinking to understand the scriptures that way. They would go back to Deuteronomy and say, no, this is what it says. It says that cursed is every man who's hanged on a tree. Cursed of God. How could a man cursed of God be the, the Messiah, the one that was to come, the one who was to be the Savior of Israel? This would be impossible for them. So he, he declares to them from the Scriptures that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and that God raised Jesus from the dead. And then he argued that since Jesus fulfilled all of these conditions, he was indeed the Christ. So I wondered and thought about this, and, and there's many scholars and maybe many different um, uh, ideas about what scriptures Paul likely opened to them. I'm thinking he probably opened something like Psalm 2 and said, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God has anointed his son to be the ruler of the kings of the earth. The ones who anger the son are quickly destroyed. There's a blessing for those who come to him in humility. Blessed are the ones who come to him in humility. Kind of makes you think of Matthew 5, doesn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come before this king in humility, lest his anger should be coming at you, right? 
There's a blessing for those who come to him. Further, it's possible that he read from Psalm 16. Uh, I'll turn there. Psalm 16. I give, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you have not abandoned my soul to Sheol uh, or let your Holy One see corruption. Perhaps he unfolded that scripture to them. But I think quite likely he opened them and their minds to Isaiah 53 and declared to them that this is the Jesus that came. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we see, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, uh, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. I think perhaps this is probably a clear explanation to these Jews of this is who this Jesus is. This is who I proclaim to you. This is the necessity of his death. The necessity that he was raised from the dead. And here, the, the words in our text that says that Paul reasoned with them for three days, that he, he proved, he explained. When you look at, at the Greek words, and I won't go to, into all of them, but this idea of reasoning, explaining, um, and, and um, encouraging them to hear and listen to these words is this idea that he gave irrefutable proof from the scriptures, that the Jesus that he proclaimed to them was indeed the Christ of the scriptures. He reasoned with them, meaning he appealed to their mind. He appealed to their intellect. He explained and proved and proclaimed the necessity of Christ's death and resurrection. This, this idea of reasoning, explaining, and proving is more than a, a stoic intellectual argument. He's not arguing with them only on the basis of intellect, although he wanted them to mentally ascend to this truth. So he used reasoning. But, but the, the whole meaning of these words kind of comes out to this, that the truth of the scriptures concerning Christ were birthed by Paul. With painstaking labor, he birthed the word of God to them. He poured out his own soul with exhausting effort that the hearer could not refuse the veracity of his argument. You got me thinking about this, this burning of, it has to be in us. It has to be something that we have embraced personally, something that we own to the very core of who we are, right? That we never give up and we never give in. And that that he reasoned for three days. Sure, probably day one, right? He's got a lot of people refusing to hear him. But I'll come back the next Sabbath and you'll hear me again. And I'll reason and I'll, I'll plead and I'll 
appeal to the deepest part of you because I want you to know what I have, what I know, what has been given to me. I want you to have that too. See, it's, it's compassion and love for the one that is here, right? Is, is a here because we have this hope that is so deep within us, one that we can't help but scream out. Like we have this necessity to get this message out because Christ died for our necessity, for our great need. And I have this great need within my soul to give it out, to work at it, to labor at it. That's the idea of what's going on here. And I think about this too, is that when we leave necessity out of our evangelistic witness, when we leave necessity out of it, we, in fact, present a complete and incomplete gospel. There has to be a description where we tell people what they need. They don't even know what they need, but their great need, we know what their great need is because we had the same great need in ourselves. We had, we had a great need within ourselves because guess what? We deserved the wrath of God and we deserved death. We had a great need for a savior. This is what the world needs. This is what our neighbors need. This is what the people across the aisle from us and across town and across the county need. They have this great need and they don't know it, but we need to tell them what their great need is. But when we leave that out, we leave out this doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity must be included in our message in order for those to understand this And I'll explain it in the most simple way, not a big, long theological discussion about what that is, but that humanly, we are completely infected by sin. That we are thoroughly infected by sin. And as such, human beings are then in bondage to that sin, and they will not have within themselves a desire or an ability to go to God for relief. They will have no desire to submit to the will of God. No desire to love him. None of you had that in yourselves. I'm telling you this right now. You may disagree with me and say that I willingly came to the Lord Jesus and surrendered my life to him. No, you didn't. It may feel like that. It may feel like that. But you and I were so thoroughly infected by sin that we would not have chosen had not the Spirit cut through the stone of our heart and said, come to me. Jesus has said multiple times throughout the Gospels, right? Nobody, nobody comes to the Father unless he draws them. Nobody will come. Jesus draws us to him by his spirit. There's a great need in in, in all of humanity to come to the Lord Jesus. This is our, this is our passion. This is our, our message. This is the thing that we must get out. But we can't leave out this fact. See, the churches today, they want to leave out that point. You are loved. We want to tell them that. Well, sure they are. You are loved. And we're loving. And we're not going to really address any problems. Because really what we're saying is that we don't necessarily, we want you to love Jesus, but most important maybe is that you love me and you think I'm a swell guy. Because if I tell you the truth, maybe you won't think I'm such a swell guy. But if we make people understand this, I tell you the truth because of love. You have a great need. You need to know your need. And you need to know that there is a Jesus to meet that need. There's a God who will meet that need and he has met that need in Jesus Christ. He has already met it. See, he died and that was necessary for you. That's the message. We've got to say this to them that God has exacted a price to be paid for rebellion to him. And the price that is owed to God is the life of the sinner. And even if you could pay the price of your own free will or whatever, If you could pay your own price for sin, it would be insufficient because the life that you would give for yourself is a life that is tainted by sin. You needed a perfect life. Your guilt will therefore remain. 
So then the question that we must ask people is, what then is necessary? What is necessary? What is necessary is grace in the will of God. What is necessary is the atoning sacrifice of a sinless Savior. What is necessary is a Savior that conquers death, that we might have life. I might ask again, what is necessary? Repentance. What is necessary? Faith. See, I believe this, that the church is not in need of a new method or a modernized retelling of this message. We don't need to modernize it, change it. We don't need to dress it up and put a bow on it. We need to pull it out of the Scripture and tell the truth. This is what it says concerning the Christ. It was necessary. His death was necessary. It was necessary. You need it. You needed his death. And I believe this, that the scriptures are sufficient to show one their necessity. The scriptures alone are sufficient to show that we have a great need. And we have a great God who has met that need in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. So it was the scriptures that Paul used to declare that Jesus is the Christ. It was the scripture that Jesus used to declare the necessity of his suffering and resurrection, wasn't it? Jesus used this scripture. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus said that the scriptures are sufficient for me to tell you of your necessity. The scriptures are sufficient to show you that I am the Christ, that I am not God's plan B. He went back to the law and the prophets to show that he was the Christ. It was God's plan A, that Jesus is the Christ. Our message is simple, isn't it? Jesus is the Christ. His death and resurrection are necessary. Our method is simple. Our message is simple. Jesus is the Christ. Our method is simple. Open up the scriptures. Know these truths deep within yourself. Present them with the passion of one who has embraced these truths yourself. Deliver them with the compassion of Christ for souls who are headed for wrath. It was good enough for the Apostle Paul. It was good enough for Jesus. It is sufficient for our church. It is sufficient. A simple message and a simple method. I, I believe that we ought to return to the simple message, the simple method of trusting in the Word of God, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to declare salvation to those whom God wills to be saved. But one more thing is needed, church. You and I must repent of our unwillingness to proclaim Jesus as the Christ. We must repent of our cowardice. We must repent of our disobedience to the command of Christ to make disciples across town, across the aisle, across the county, across the places where we work, where we live, where we go to school, where we conduct business. We must repent of our desire to be thought well of. We must have a desire to have Christ be thought well of, to have our God, who we sing songs today. God is forever faithful, right? We, we, we lifted up praise to him. We need to really believe that in ourselves, that God is the wor one worthy of being thought well of, even if that costs me a great deal, even if that means that those who I tell that truth to don't think well of me. I told them what was necessary. I told them what was needed. What was needed was Christ's death for their sin. What needed is that God was faithful when you were faithless. What was needed is that Jesus was obedient to the Father when you were disobedient. What is needed is you need to know that. You need to repent of your sin and turn to Him. Well, so let's move forward here. And we'll see that uh, as it was at Philippi, it is in Thessalonica. Looking at verse 4 and 5. 
And some of them were persuaded, persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading men, uh, women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So, here it is. There, what is the response to our claiming the necessity that Jesus is the Christ and that God raised him from the dead? What will be the response? There will be followers and there will be antagonists. As it was in Philippi, as it is in Thessalonica, so it will be in Washington County, so it will be in Yamhill County. See, you and I want results, but we only want them if they're positive. But there is going to be a result. Some will receive, those whom God has chosen, will receive the word with gladness in their hearts and turn and repent and will be added to the kingdom. And others will be opposed. But don't give up, as Paul didn't either. He reasoned three Sabbaths, and he, and he, over and over again, he appealed to them. You see, it's not a one and done kind of deal. Cause I remember when the gospel was first presented to me. And I remember my response. I was an antagonist. I was immediately an antagonist. You are a weak minded person. This is my thought of the man who shared it with me. You are a weak minded person who needs a crutch to lean on because you don't have enough power and strength in yourself. And so you are therefore asking me to be weak. And I'm telling you, I'm not. And you've also told me that this is an all or nothing proposition. And I'm not willing. I oppose this, right? I oppose this in my own heart. But praise God that the Holy Spirit did not leave me alone. Praise God that he kept sending people my way, telling me the same truth. And one day, when it was the Lord's perfect timing, I said, everything your word says is true about every person I've ever met. Everything your word says is true about me. And then there was this moment, a leap of faith that said, I must trust everything it says about you. If I can believe that, it's, that everything it says about me is true, by faith, I believe that everything it says about you is true. Because I knew me and I knew people, but I didn't know him. And on the pages of scripture, he revealed himself to me. And now I praise God that I do know him. So here it is. The gospel is going to have its spirit intended effect upon the, those who are called in Christ. They will hear the message uh, of the words concerning the Christ. They will inherit eternal, eternal life and they will be granted repentance and faith and they will follow after Christ. And there are those who will hear the word of God and will become antagonistic to the gospel. Those who are enemies of the cross, those whose God is their own appetites, as the letter to the Philippians describes. Upon Paul's pleading in the Thessalonian synagogue, some Jews were persuaded of the truth. Many of the native Greeks and a number of the society ladies as well. The legions of the Jews opposed the teaching of Paul and sought to destroy him, that they might silence the Christians and undermine the progress of the gospel. The Jewish leaders enlist the lowest common denominator in their cause, don't they? As we see in this passage, they engage the wicked men of the city. Join our cause. They engage the troublemakers. And what do they do with the troublemakers? They accuse the Christians of being troublemakers. They engage troublemakers, people who cause problems, and saying these people cause problems, right? It's kind of funny, I think, or, or odd. So they go after this Jason, and when they, and when they, they couldn't find the, uh, the apostles, they go after Jason, and they drag Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So, they make two accusations, right, against the missionaries. And the accusations are true, but they're stated 
from an erroneous perception of what's going on. The first accusation is that they have turned the world upside down. In the, in the perception, the accusation is a, is a hyperbolic way of, of communicating that wherever Christians go, they cause trouble. Wherever you see these Christians going there, these guys are troublemakers. You, you can't trust them. Do you hear that today sometimes? When you watch the news or you hear about who we are, we're just a, a room full of bigots who are narrow-minded and hateful. That's the perception, right? Troublemakers. We won't go along, right? We won't go along with the crowd. So therefore, you're a troublemaker. You're causing problems. You're turning the world upside down. Well, the accusation here is true. The world does get turned upside down when a sinner repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. In a sense, the world gets turned upside down. Remember Paul's letter of encouragement to the Thessalonican church later? He says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Matthew Henry comments on Acts 17, 6, saying this, because they persuaded people to turn from idols to the living and true God, from malice and envy to love and peace, they are charged with turning the world upside down. When it was really the kingdom of Satan's influence in the world that got turned upside down. The missionaries and the believing Christians then turned the world upside down. Further, Matthew Henry comments that on what happens in a believer's life when the gospel of grace is received unto faith and repentance. The love of the world is rooted out of the heart. And the way of the world is contradicted with the way that they live. So that their world is turned upside down. So this claim is true, but they didn't have the right perspective, right? These guys are turning the world upside down. And not only that, Jason is harboring those who uh, claim that there is another kingdom. A kingdom ruled not by Caesar, but ruled by this Jesus. From their short-sighted perspective, these troublemaking missionaries are claiming that a political and military and economic kingdom that is going to rival Caesar has come. And he's rivaling the Roman Empire. This is what they're claiming. Paul's preaching could have been construed by them as a prediction of a change of ruler. There were imperial decrees against such predictions. Oaths of loyalty to Caesar uh, could be regarded as demanded by decrees. And these would be enforced by these local magistrates. But you see, Christians don't claim an alternative kingdom, do we? We don't claim that there's a kingdom of the world and then there's another kingdom. We proclaim that there's one king over all. That he rules even the kingdoms of the earth. That he is the king of heaven and the king of earth. He is, there's one true king. We don't claim him as an alternative, as a kingdom that is in comparison or of equal value or of different value. You see, what we do is we proclaim, announce, we herald, we thoroughly explain, we prove from the authority of Scripture that there is one who rules and he is far above all kingdoms. And he came and he lived amongst, amongst us. He suffered justice of God and he suffered the wrath of God that was reserved for me and reserved for all sinners. The one who rules and reigns over and above Caesar is the one who rules and reigns over present Biden, the one who rules and reigns over Congress, the one who rules and reigns over Tina Kotek. He is the sinless one who by necessity died for us. We're not claiming an alternative kingdom. We're claiming that the world is ruled by a king and his name is Jesus. That's what we claim. His name is Jesus. That is our simple Message And God raised him from the dead, making him the forever king. That he is the forever king. 
and that He is raised for our justification. Our message is simple. Jesus is the Christ. Christ is the King who rules now, and He rules from heaven, and He's far above any rule or earthly authority. His death and resurrection were necessary. You see, our method is simple. We open the Scriptures. We know these truths in ourselves. We present them with the passion of one who has embraced these truths. We deliver them with the compassion of Christ for souls who are headed for wrath. This is our simple message. This is our simple method. And we reason and encourage and plead and beg and persevere in this simple message and this simple method. And we trust in God for the results. That's the big thing. we got to trust in God for the results. How would they respond in Thessalonica? The Spirit would give those with ears to hear eternal life. And by grace, they would become followers of Jesus Christ. Others in Thessalonica are stirred up by their own pride, stirred up by their own self-righteousness. They would harden their own hearts further and become entrenched, insolent opponents. How will you respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that is proclaimed to you from the authority of the Word of God? Right here where you sit or wherever it is that you might hear that message. How will you respond? Will you be an insolent opponent? Or will you surrender to the king? As we move forward, they move on to Berea. And they find kind of the same thing happens in Berea. Right? There are agitators. There are those who are insolent opponents. Verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them before believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. The brothers in Thessalonica, they send Paul and Silas away to Berea. The message and the method remain the same. They reason from the scriptures giving irrefutable testimony to the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection, declaring him Christ in his suffering and God having raised him from the dead, declaring him king. The response of the Jews in Berea was different than the synagogue leader's response in Thessalonica. They were eager to receive the word. They didn't passively listen to the message preached, but they examined what was being said against the scriptures that were declared. The passage declares that the Berean Jews were more noble. They were zealous to hear what Paul had to say. So they met with him daily, and not merely just on the Sabbath. They didn't accept what he said thoughtlessly and uncritically, but they themselves examined the Scriptures to see whether the case which Paul had developed was sound. There was no mere emotional response to the Gospel, but one that was also based on intellectual conviction. They weren't like Christians who come to church and they listen to the word preached and they have no intention of gauging in its truth, no intention of listening to its admonitions, no intention of walking in its encouragements. They didn't come here to give a critique. They came to intentionally engage their minds to determine the veracity of the message preached. The result was that a considerable number of them believed, both Jews and well-to-do Greek men and women. I would ask us this as a point of application. Do you engage with the Word of God, preach to your mind? With your mind, do you engage with it? Do you engage with its truth? Or do you immediately let the message bypass your heart so that afterwards you might engage in a conversation with your friend about what you're going to have for lunch? I think that's what happens often. So we hear the Word of God preached. We hear its encouragements. We hear its corrections. And within minutes, we've engaged in something else and the message has left us. Do we engage in the Word of God and just say, I punched my spiritual time clock and now I'm done? I pray that we as a church would be like the Bereans and we would not know those who punch their spiritual time clock on the Lord's day when we hear a message and then we're done, but that we would engage with the message of Christ every day. That Sunday afternoon through the evening on Saturday, 
And that after we leave a service, having heard the word of God, we might ask ourselves and we might ask each other, how did this message challenge you? What was the word of God speaking to you? Here's what it spoke to me. And then evaluating yourself, what in my life needs to change? We don't want to evaluate that for others, right? Evaluate that in ourselves. What in my life needs to change? What can I do to live out these truths? What scriptures can I later look up that will help me follow Jesus more closely? How should I pray for my fellow brothers and sisters? This is engaging in the word of God in the way that these Bereans did. And here the word of God calls them more noble. They're more noble. But look at the animosity that is about to come, even from those in Thessalonica. They are determined, they are determined to thwart this Christian message so much so that although the Berean synagogue doesn't come against them, guess what? We'll go to Berea too. We'll go there and we'll stir it up. Look at verse uh, 13 through 15. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent off Paul on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Even though we see there's a favorable response from the Jews in Berea, the gospel message has its believers, has its followers, has its adherents, as well as its opponents, as well as its agitators. The Thessalonian synagogue leaders follow them to Berea to agitate, to stir up the crowd. Legal action against the missionaries in Thessalonica could not be valid elsewhere. So although they wanted to bring legal action to them, right, because they've moved on to Berea, they really had no recourse against them. So what do they do? Is that they stir up the crowd against them. They stir up those who uh, kind of are standing around and not making a commitment anywhere. Stir those people up against these people. There's no kind of general policing of the province to follow up on criminals from one town to another either. So consequently, their only recourse was to repeat their former efforts. I got to do this again. We drove them out once. We'll drive them out here. We'll do it in the same way. We'll stir up a crowd. We'll get people opposed to them. I think even our, our local news does that to stir up people against the Christian faith, making false claims. Christians are like this. Christians believe that. And they know nothing about what we believe or who we are. They know nothing about the Christ that we serve. They know nothing about the necessity of his death for us. They know nothing about the fact that since we serve the great king, that we are but a bunch of beggars who have been humbled by the holiness of God. That's all we are. We're not out there trying to cause trouble. We are those who know we were troublemakers. And we made all kinds of trouble for ourselves by, by not submitting ourselves to holy God. We know who we are. We're not that, but they would stir, they would stir up thoughts and uh, enmity against us. So the brothers, they, they whisk away the leader and the spokesman, Paul. They send him to Athens with Paul's directive to send him Silas and Timothy. With the leader gone, uh, Silas and Timothy are likely to have some liberty to stay. So they stay, they teach, they encourage, and otherwise continue discipling new converts at Berea. See, I want us to get this too. Becoming a disciple is more than hearing the word of God preached on Sunday morning, but it's not less. It's never less than that, but it is more. It's more than that, but it's never less than that. Paul reasoned with them for three Sabbaths. See, hearing the word of God Sunday morning, hearing the word of God and becoming a disciple is a daily process. It is a habitual, a habitual weekly process. It is a practice. He convinces them on three Sabbaths. He pleads with them, ensuring that the, gospel, uh, that, that the gospel was thoroughly explained, thoroughly proclaimed. 
that they had a thoroughgoing understanding of what he was communicating. And the Bereans, they daily examine the scriptures. Daily they engage with what the missionaries were saying about the doctrine of Jesus as the Christ and the King. And they opened to them the scriptures. I kept thinking about this today. I'm thinking about this in my life and over this last week. It takes a lifetime to understand the fullness of what Christ's suffering has done for me. It's going to take my whole life. It's going to take every day of my life to get the fullness of the necessity of Christ's death for my sin. You know why that is? It's because although I can tell you that I know that I was thoroughly depraved, I don't know how thorough that really was. I don't know the depths. I, I don't want to examine those depths. And I deny them. I deny them. When I make excuses for my sin, I'm saying it's all, it's not that bad. Yesterday at Hal's um, birthday party, I was talking with Steve. And Steve and I were talking about the idea of, of going out and taking long walks, right? And he says, inside, right? Every time you go out to take a walk and you have in your mind that you're going you're gonna to go out and you're going to walk for an hour and a half. When you get out there and you're 30 minutes into that walk, your brain and your heart tell you you've done enough. It's okay. You can stop. You have an excuse. You walked this far. It's okay. We do that with our own sin sometimes. We say, yeah, I've, I've done enough. I've gone this far in the Lord. I don't need to go any further. I let myself off the hook. I know God commands us to go and make disciples, but maybe that's just some Christians, not me. Because after all, I believe in him. That's enough, isn't it? I put my faith and my trust in him. That's enough. My brain and my heart, my mind tell me, eh, that's enough. You're okay. You can obey some of the commands. You don't have to obey them all. You don't have to observe all that Jesus commanded. That's not really what the scripture says. See, it's, it's a lie from the enemy and it's a lie from ourselves. We like to lie ourselves about those things. It takes daily repentance for us to submit to Christ as the king. It's going to take a lifetime to submit fully to Jesus as king, I think, too. Because every day, we want to be Lord. Every day, our flesh wants to be Lord. That's the battle, isn't it? I wake up in the flesh in the morning, and I know it. I wake up in the me. Instead of waking up in the spirit on the Lord's day, as John says in Revelation, most days I wake up, and I got me to deal with. And the first thing I want is everything I want. I want what I want. In fact, I'll just admit my sinful heart this morning. When I wake up, I go out in the living room. At 6.15, my daughter is on the couch with the TV on. And I'm aggravated. Because I can't have my time for myself in the quiet of the living room to drink a cup of coffee by myself with nobody talking to me, nobody looking at me, nobody saying, I want me. Right then, I wanted me. And I took it out on her a little bit, I'm going to tell you the truth. I took it out on her a little bit. She got a little snippy, and then I realized, you know what? I've got a table sitting outside my house that's quite quiet. There's nobody out there. I can go out there and be alone. With my coffee, I can do whatever, right? But I woke up in me. I want what I want, and I want it now, right? It's going to take a lifetime for me to submit fully to the kingship and the lordship of Jesus because I want to be Lord all the time. My flesh does. My spirit wants to surrender to him fully. My spirit, my spirit wants the Lord to be the Lord and only Lord, the only thing that rules over me. And my flesh says, no. You are Lord. You should demand what you want. 
You should be happy. You should be pleased. And everybody around you should live according to that. You need to please yourself and you need to find people who surround you who, who will do that for you, right? That's what my flesh desires. My spirit wants the Lord to be Lord. So being a disciple of Jesus Christ is a daily practice. Being a, dis- a disciple-making Christian across the aisle or across the town or in, in the counties where we live is a daily discipline. So I'm going to close with this and ask you to ask yourself just two questions. Will you repent of your neglect of the Great Commission command to make disciples? Will you turn from the excuse of busyness and carve out daily time to examine the Word of God and to examine yourself against the truths that it reveals? After Joe leads us in the Lord's table, we're going to sing a song that is probably new to you, but it's one of my one of my very favorites. And the lyrics of the chorus, I just want to say to you before we take a moment of silence. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our king, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him.